because of the pandemic and the issues that it has created for supply and demand, supply chains become a household word. If it takes me longer to recover my supply chain to normal operations than I have inventory on hand to meet that demand, I'm in big trouble. And that's what that's what the pandemic has really taught us. Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Making of the SRE Omelette podcast. Supply chain has been blamed for many problems during the pandemic of the last couple of years. Anything from toilet paper, to chips for your car, and chicken sandwich. As my next guest have noted, joining us today to talk about supply chain and SRE is Marshall Lamb, distinguished engineer and CTO of Sterling, IBM Sustainability Software. Welcome to the show, Marshall. Thank you, Kevin. Happy to be here. So Marshall, before our guests wander further, perhaps you can share the story of the chicken sandwich to get us started. Yeah, sure. So I was traveling on the road and I believe I was on Interstate 95 and it was lunchtime and I was hungry. So I pulled off and found a, a fast food restaurant and um, I went inside and as I approached the cash register, I noticed there was, and this was during the pandemic, this was actually probably within six to eight months of the pandemic. And so as I approached the cash register, I noticed there was a printed sign on the cash register and it said, due to supply chain issues, we are temporarily unable to serve chicken sandwiches. And I just remember pausing and thinking about that sign. Well, first of all, I really wasn't going to get a, a chicken sandwich, so I wasn't worried about that. But the fact that it called out supply chain issues struck me as they're making supply chain a household word not them uh, obviously not the fast food restaurant but suddenly because of the pandemic and, and the issues that it has created for supply and demand supply chains become a household word when ideally it shouldn't right supply chain is is something that we all take for granted as as happening happily and working properly every day that when we go to the grocery store and we look for our milk and bread that it's there on the shelf or when we go get a new set of tires for our car that they have our brand and model in in, in stock but um when it doesn't work it's like plumbing in a house when you when you go into a friend's house and you go use a restroom and turn on the water faucet you're just expecting water to flow but when it doesn't wow what's happening here why, why is this plumbing all of a sudden failing? Oh, and when it really fails and you have backups in the toilet or a burst in the line out in the yard, it's spectacular. It, it, I mean, when plumbing goes bad, it has the ability to condemn a building. <laughs> I mean, you're right, a bad paint job? Yeah, that looks bad. But plumbing, when something goes bad with supply chain, things come to a grinding halt in our economy. And starts to affect our everyday life so it just really made me stop and think wow suddenly because of this pandemic supply chain has become a household word and I'm not sure that's a good thing I love that analogy and Marshall it is September and close to the peak shopping season performance and reliability is very much like what you said most of the time they're transparent but when services fail and impact the business and customer they become front and center of all forms of escalations. That's right. And most large retailers make a huge percentage of their profits in the last 
month to month and a half of the year. So Black Friday, um, the after Christmas sales, the, that last two months or so are really, really important for large retailers. So if the supply chain is broken or there's something just preventing resupply of inventory, that's hugely impactful to these retailers. Right. And Marshall, this is a perfect segue to the main purpose of this podcast, which are to understand the business impact of SRE and the culture to achieve that outcome you spoke of. Could you start by sharing with the audience what SRE means to you from a supply chain perspective? That's a really great question. So SRE, Site Reliability Engineering, obviously that applies universally to infrastructure and the management of infrastructure. The thing about a supply chain is that it's almost like a happy mistake that it all works. <laughs> and the, because a supply chain is a stitched together series mm -hmm. of systems and human-based processes that are owned by lots of different entities, right? So you have customers, you have retailers, you have distrib distributors, wholesalers, suppliers, manufacturers, and they all have to work together. To make it to make it all happen to make our economy thrive and so no single entity no single enterprise no single business owns that infrastructure end-to-end -end. you own your little bit you own your piece so from the pure sense of the word sre there's only a portion of the entire supply chain that me as an entity owner as an enterprise owner are actually in control of and sure, in the traditional sense, I am responsible for making sure that that infrastructure running my portion of the supply chain is resilient. It's highly available. It's distributed. I have proper monitoring in place and all the good things that SRE teaches us we should do, I should be applying to the bit that I control. But what about the entire supply chain? So I've given this a lot of thought, especially given the influences of the pandemic. I bridge the gap between SRE and the supply chain by talking about business continuity. So in, in my past history with, with IBM, I've been responsible for cloud operations of, of various products and we had to have a business continuity plan. Uh, IBM requires us to do that and it requires that we practice it. Well, the business continuity plan at a high level has two components. It has what are you doing infrastructure-wise, basically technology? How do I define high availability? Uh, how do I uh, practice rolling updates and recovery when things go wrong? But that's really infrastructure technology and technology operations. The other half that people don't think about all that much in a business continuity plan is what about my people? Mm -hmm. what, what, what if I lose an entire data center? Well, okay, well, I've lost that infrastructure. Sure, and I, ha I should have the ability to follow to other location, but... What about the people who work in that data Probably center? They can't go into office. <laughs> yeah. What, what are they? Yeah. What happens if they can't go into an office? Right. So when we practice business continuity, we not only practice failing over technology, but we have our people work from home that day. Can they do their mm -hmm. job sufficiently from home? Now let's superimpose that idea with a supply chain. What does business continuity look like from a supply chain perspective? Well, again, I only own the bit that I own, right? I don't own what my partners do. I have no responsibility over them or my, or my suppliers or my distributors or my manufacturers. I can't control what they do. 
I can through my business. I can decide not to do business with them because I don't like what they're doing. But at the end of the day, they are responsible for their own business continuity plans. Okay. Well, given that, what does business continuity mean to me? And I, and I think another way to say it is what does a resilient supply chain mean to me and what can I do about it? First of all, there's measurement. So you would say, Kevin, that in any SRE practice, you have to measure what you do and so that you can understand if you're making improvement, right? right? And, or and one you thing, know what, one, what good enough is, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. What is good enough? Well, what uh, the DevOps practice taught us that I think translates really well into SRE is that time to recovery is a really important metric to measure, right? When something goes wrong, mm -hmm. and stuff always goes wrong, <laughs> you anticipate and many times, you expect it well. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. You can't deny that's going to go wrong, yeah. right? It, something, something will fail. Yeah. Um, so what are you going to do about it? How, how fast can you recover from it? So we can't prevent failure, and I think the pandemic taught us that mm -hmm. really, really well. So how quickly can I recover? So TTR in the supply chain world is very important. But again, that's about what do I control? The bits that I control. And we'll talk about in a minute uh, what I think that means in the supply chain realm. So it means so TTR equally applies in importance to supply chain operations as it does in IT operations. If something goes wrong in my supply chain, how quickly can I recover so I'm not impacting my business or so I'm not impacting my customers? So I think that's an important metric, but there's a new metric that is introduced in the supply chain world that in typical SRE is not measured, and that's TTS, time to survive. Hmm. And in, let's take a large retailer, for example. Let's take a grocery store. So whenever, I, I grew up on the southeast Texas coast, and we had hurricanes all the time. And of course, when a hurricane was barreling down on the coast, there'd be a run on milk and, and bread and other things in the, in the right, water all that. <laughs> water exactly yeah. and so well that's a big problem that i did not anticipate that inventory hit so maybe i should have as a um as a grocer started stacking up stocking up on, on more bread and water and uh and milk but my inventory on hand and the demand on that inventory defines what my time to survive is uh, survival means keeping inventory for every sale. I do not want to have an out of stock Keeping situation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Out of stock situations for retailers are, are death. Because, well, or for grocery, some of the food may expire, right? Right, exactly. And that's a whole other problem, keeping on top of, <laughs> of, of, of expirations and making sure you stay up on top of expir, expiring inventory. But let's just think of it from, from a demand perspective. If, if it's very important for me to measure what my typical demand is to stay ahead of that demand and make sure I have inventory to meet that demand. But what if there's a sudden change in that demand? Mm -hmm. Like when a hurricane uh, is approaching the coast, that the demand the, the demand on certain goods accelerates beyond what normal measures show. And so my time to survive is suddenly diminished. Right. So it's, it's really, really important for supply chain operators who, who have inventory as part of their supply chain to understand what their TTS is, was time to survive. And that doesn't all, only apply to a retailer who has inventory in store to meet a customer's demand, but it also applies to distributors and manufacturers. And so the equation that presents a problem is if my time to recover exceeds my time to survive, I have a big problem. Right. 
right? If it takes me longer to recover my supply chain to normal operations than I have inventory on hand to meet that demand, I'm in big trouble. And that's what that's what the pandemic has really taught us. So there, there's no magic answer to how to ensure you always have enough inventory on hand no matter what the demand is because that can fluctuate wildly, widely. But it's important to measure it. What is my typical time to survive? What is my typical time to recovery? And how can I make both better, right? So a resilient supply chain, I think, given that, a resilient supply chain looks like this. From the point of view of an enterprise that owns a portion of the supply chain. First, I should have multiple suppliers, not just one. As a, as a grocer, I should have multiple suppliers that can give me bell peppers, not just one farmer. And I should be actively rotating between those suppliers such that at any given point, if a supplier is impacted by some, let's say, natural event, like fires in California are affecting farms, right? If, so if my supplier is in California and, and they had to evacuate their farm because of a, a large fire, then I need another supplier to get my, um, my bell peppers from. So it's just like IT operations. I should have multiple data centers, multiple right. servers that can equally serve requests. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I should do that from a supplier perspective. The other thing is I should be digitizing and requiring my partners to digitize every aspect of their business. Digitization removes human processes, removes, it removes manual intervention, which not only makes things more efficient, but it makes it more portable. Now, if I'm not dealing with a clipboard, I could operate my business from home or anywhere or, you know, a coffee shop on the corner because it's been digitized. So that helps with the mobility of my human element in the case of a disaster, right? right? People are working remotely. Exactly. Right? They can do it anywhere if their aspect of the business is properly digitized. And by the way, there's a side effect of that, that digitized processes also make that data that is now digitized readily available to visualization and analytics for end-to-end visibility, which is another aspect of resilient supply chain. I need that end-to-end -end visibility. I need to know where my orders are, where my shipments are, and if they're stalled or broken or something is held up, I need to know immediately so that I can take corrective action before it becomes customer impacting, just like an SRE. You know, if a server goes right. belly up, I need to be able to recover that server before its effect is affecting my customers or my business. Same thing in the supply chain. I need to be able to see what's happening in the supply chain well enough to where if there is a, an impact, and there will be, that I can do something about it before it starts impacting my business. And, and then, of course, there's the workforce continuity that I mentioned around business continuity plans. If all of that is in place, then my people should be able to do their job wherever they are. So if they have to evacuate their town because of floods or uh, they have to leave the building because of a power outage and they can, they can work from home, right? So I think those are the aspects of a resilient supply chain. And again, it goes back to measuring TTR and TTS, time to recovery and time to survive and optimizing both. And then, and once you do that, you can start playing what if scenarios. I can start modeling disaster scenarios and determine, well, what are the courses of action I need to take if that happens? So they can actually model and test various disaster scenarios. Supply chain, as you described, really sounds just like a complex system. And just like supply chain, you need that visibility to data for us to drive actions, be it automated or manual. Yeah, 
Exactly. If, if you don't properly digitize your business, not only are you probably spending a lot of extra effort and cost on manual processes, but you're losing out on an opportunity to model different outcomes. Right. With data, we can anticipate and proactively adjust as needed versus being reactive, doing things only after the fact. Exactly. But just like it, it helps you model disaster scenarios, it can also help you model new revenue opportunities. Mm, right, right, right. Because th this is all about, if you, the more you can optimize, even shave off single digit percentage points on time spent, you can increase your your uh, profit margins considerably because of the, by lowering the costs of the of the supply chain operations. So it's not only about disaster recovery and business continuity, but it's also about mining new cost savings and and, and uh, profit making opportunities as well. I also liked how you touch on dependencies. Everyone's supply chain owns a little piece, and no one has control over everything. This is very much like a complex system. I remember you coaching the team to simply anticipate that everything that can fail will fail. Sure, we can ask our dependencies to be more reliable, but what's in our control is to be better at handling those failures to mitigate or minimize the disruptions to the service that we provide. That's right. At the end of the day, we only control what we control. And we can complain when someone else fails at their job. We can complain all we want, but we can't prevent them from failing at what they do. All we can do is be resilient to when they fail. Right, and that's definitely a big aspect of how we learn from disruptions. Exactly, exactly. That's why, that's why I think these, these learnings and SREs are applies to infrastructure and infrastructure operations applies equally to supply chain. It, it Maybe even more so because... Again, I'm only controlling my bit of the supply chain. So how am I, how can I be more resilient to when other aspects, when other parts of my supply chain fail that I don't control? What do I need to do about that? And speaking of data from a latency and processing time perspective, good enough in retail, especially inventory management is measured in milliseconds or near real time. I recall for supply chain, it would be good enough if training documents can be delivered in five to 10 minutes. Marshall, can you give the audience some example of what good enough in supply chain looks like now and if that's changing? Yeah, that, that's an interesting phenomenon. It's actually changing too. Let's use a bank example. And this, this doesn't, this doesn't uh, necessarily translate directly to other supply chains, but I think it, it's a good example. So not that long ago, if I were to go into a bank branch and, and deposit a check, it wouldn't appear on my account. Uh, I wouldn't be credited in my account until the end of the day. Even if I went in the morning, it wouldn't happen until the end of the day. And I, I remember thinking, boy, I wanted to work as a bank as a kid because they, they uh, closed every day at 4.30. <laughs> right? And I was thinking, wow, oh, that'd be great to work for a company. I get to go home at 4.30. I didn't realize that they just closed their doors and they spent the next hour to two Time hours <laughs> clearing all those checks. Yeah, going through all the checks and batching them up and then sending the information to the central bank or the Federal Reserve. So they're doing a lot of work behind the day at the end of the day in batch. So batch processing of value chain, I'll use the term value chain instead of supply chain because that equally applies to things like financial supply chains as well as retail supply chains. But value chains in the in 
and B2B networking are largely batch oriented. Mm -hmm. And so the transactions, even though electronic, were fewer but huge. Right. Typically large batches or giant envelopes or think of them as giant giant zip files filled with orders or invoices or or even deposited checks. And they were processed infrequently. And that's just how business worked. And so yeah, there's there was a there was, and up until recently, pretty lenient requirements around data transaction fidelity. The, you know, service level agreements, SLAs around data delivery were in in uh, terms of tens of minutes. Right. So, I it I, you know if it takes up to thirty minutes to actually get a response, then yeah, that's probably okay. <laughs> but that's changing rapidly, and not to call out one vendor specifically, but we often call it the Amazon effect. And and mm. really, it's about online retailers, as you hinted at. We have as individual private consumers we have developed an expectation of knowing the status of my order at any given minute of every day right, right. so i can look up where my order is if it's being packaged if it's been shipped and what my tracking number is and i can even get to the point where i can see where the truck is on the road and how many stops that truck has before getting to my house right that's an amazing level of data availability and fidelity to the and, yeah. and transparency to the end user, to the customer, to me, to the to the person who is outside of the supply chain, really, as an individual consumer. That is an amazing lack of data latency. The data is just available. It seems like it seems like instantaneously and available to me, the the private consumer. So as a private consumer now, I am bringing that expectation for lower data latency and availability into the workplace, into my enterprise. Why can't I know the status of my order at any given minute? Why are you taking, Mr. Supplier, 30 minutes <laughs> right. to acknowledge my order? And so there is a increasing demand for faster transaction um, availability, trans transaction completion and transparency and availability of data. And so what comes with that is a transition, a pretty slow transition away from batch-oriented data exchanges, which are file-based today or yesterday, and think of like SFTP or AS2 protocols where you're just sending over large batches files mm -hmm. and moving away from that to more API-driven workloads. Interesting. So, That's a whole school of problems. Yeah, and so... <laughs> Challenges. Right, right. I mean, APIs have been around for decades in the inter in, right. in software world. So a software engineer thinks, what? Why are APIs all of a sudden important to supply chain? They've been around for decades. <laughs> why, why supply chain? Why now? Well, it's just because supply chains have been batch-oriented. They've been using right. file-based transfer protocols for decades. They work just fine. They're just, there's nothing wrong with them. It's just now businesses are bringing a new expectation. And with that comes a demand for different ways of moving that data around. So think about, not to dwell on this too much, but think about what has to happen in a file transfer batch-oriented based supply chain. There has to be a file server that I'm depositing files to or being or, or customers are pulling files out of, out of the network and putting them in, in their file server. And something has to be done to that file, has to break it up, and then push it to different places, maybe upload it to an ERP, maybe load it up to a CRM. But something has to watch for those files and then do something with those files with another system. 
So in order to do faster business, in order to have that faster transaction, the faster settlement of, a, of an order, you really can't afford to have that middleman, as it were, that file server. You, you got to mm. get rid of that, simplify your network, and have your network actually communicate directly via APIs with the transacting system. And and that, that not only simplifies the path, but APIs generally are used for smaller bits of data, not huge amounts of data, and are right. much more responsive. So we're moving rapidly. And easier to recover. Exactly, yeah. Much easier to recover. And so we're moving rapidly to, away from large, infrequent, batch-oriented data transfers to more frequent, much smaller, more nimble API-based transactions in order to fuel that expectation, in order to meet that expectation of having instantaneous transaction acknowledgement and payment settlements and data availability. So that's what we're seeing from a technology perspective to meet that expectation. Thanks for sharing that fantastic insight, Marshall. It is really good to connect changes in consumer expectations to changes in the definition of what success means in supply chain and in turn changes the architecture and technology needed to meet those goals. With that, and in relation to your childhood dream of being a banker, <laughs> a big part of this podcast is technical vitality. Marshall, any words of wisdom you would give to audiences you may have just inspired to look into a profession related to supply chain? Well, I, uh, I really haven't been in the supply chain space that long. I've been probably four years now and I've been working, I am working with several people who this is their life work, working in supply chain. And I, so I learn a huge amount every day from working these, with these people. But there's one thing that I have in common with them in that the majority of my career at IBM has been on the back end of software development. I, I call myself a plumber, not a painter. And supply chain is all about plumbing. It's all about going back to our resiliency uh, talk about the data movement. Uh, it's hard to move data around to different systems, many of which you don't control and make sure everything works properly. It is an amazing collaboration of, of entities and individuals that otherwise wouldn't talk to each other. So going back to my statement, it's a happy mistake that our <laughs> supply chains even work. But if, if someone's interested in supply chain, I really do think one of the biggest opportunities that supply chain practitioners have going forward, especially from an engineering perspective, is in this area of more resilient, more nimble, faster supply chains. I think certainly an element of that is SRE. Um, and I have a thought on on really getting into the SRE um, engineering space equally for supply chain as well as anything else like IT operations. But in supply chain in general, if someone wants to get into supply chain, I really think beyond just engineering discipline around plumbing and understand what it means to securely and reliably move data from point A to point B, you really need to understand the business. And I think unlike almost any other job that I've had at IBM, I've really had to understand the industry better for this job because so much of the behavior of a supply chain is driven by expectations and behaviors of the companies that mm -hmm. rely on the supply chain. It's really important to understand what's important to them. 
and also you really need to understand when things go wrong how it impacts them I mean when a when an aspect of a supply chain that we control fails for whatever reason we hear it we hear about it from our customers I mean if a supply chain fails they're losing money real money and we of course we hear about it and they we 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 get to understand just how impactful this plumbing is to their everyday business I think it's really important for supply chain practitioner to really spend time with customers and not only their customers or their service customers but their suppliers their distributors um, understand all the different roles that play in a supply chain so you can understand what's important to them and what their needs are so I think I think that's a that's, that's important and certainly when a lot of people think of supply chain they think retail large retail that's the big bear in the room but there are lots of different types of supply chains out there there are manufacturing supply chains there are financial supply chains there are medical supply chains so there are lots of different styles and types of supply chains and they all bring different types of requirements and and sometimes regulatory requirements as well so understanding the business is imperative to being able being able to build a, a productive supply chain but from an SRE perspective because we did we have spent so much time talking about how SRE translates to supply chain if someone wanted to get into the software side of supply chain it's really no different than any type of highly resilient IT infrastructure you may want to you may want to get involved in other than the fact that you just have to be aware that what you're building from a technology perspective is the heartblood of these enterprises of these businesses so resiliency time to recovery is really really important it's always right. important right Kevin yes sir I mean TTR is always important no matter what you're right but it's particularly poignant for supply chain technology and so I would challenge an engineer who wants to get into supply chain to ask him or herself this question and to ask his or her her other uh, colleagues this question when your code breaks <laughs> and it will break how will it break how will you know and what will you do about it now I'm not here to imply that as an engineer you're writing bad code I'm, we've all written bad code we know what that's like I'm not accusing anyone <laughs> of writing bad code I'm just saying when your code breaks because your codes likely depend on something else I uh, in, in my part of the supply chain I am expecting when I send an order to a supplier that that supplier acknowledges my order well what right. if it doesn't and right. how do you know it doesn't and my right. code yeah. is <laughs> yeah exactly exactly so it's important to understand equally for any system that you're you're writing software for but again more importantly for supply chain it's important to understand everywhere in your code that could break many times because of things beyond your control but how will it break what will it look like when it breaks how and so you need to understand all those points and then how will you know meaning are you properly monitoring those points of breakage so if if this remote system I'm dependent on or this remote supplier that I'm dependent on if if they don't do their job what do I need to look for to make to make sure I understand that as quickly as possible how am I monitoring my system and then lastly once you're alerted that something's wrong what are you going to do about it what's your playbook what's your reaction what automation do you do you, uh, do you employ to correct the action if if 
You ask yourself and your colleagues that simple question. When your code breaks, how will it break? How will you know? And what will you do about it? You are off on good footing from an SRE perspective, not only for supply chain, but any software solution that is dependent upon a highly resilient system. Those are great advices for both current and future practitioners. In fact, those series of questions, how we know something has failed and how we recover are fundamental questions we have in instant learning. But I really want to echo the part you mentioned about getting to know the customer, not just what their expectations are, but also understanding how our disruptions impact them. Because only with that understanding can we design a better system that leads to client success. So Marshall, you took us through a great journey from the chicken sandwich to what a resilient supply chain means today and what it will mean tomorrow. Going back to the inspiration of this podcast, what would you say is the ingredient and recipe for organization to achieve the SRE outcome? So I think SRE is a natural evolution of the DevOps movement. And I got initiated in, in DevOps as part of an exercise when taking a product that I was responsible for to cloud back in 2013 now. And so I was part of a, a task force of engineers who were tasked with bringing up our solution, which we had been running in our own data center in a cloud. And what did that mean? And that's when we got introduced to DevOps. But back in 2013, DevOps was not the buzzword that it had become. And, and SRE certainly wasn't a notion. And, and I feel very, very strongly that DevOps is not a job description. And therefore, I also feel very strongly that SRE is not a job description. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. We need strong practitioners like yourself to teach people how to practice SRE and, and DevOps correctly. But it's, it's not a profession in general. It's a practice. It's a right. philosophy. It's a and hat you wear. Yeah, it, yeah it's, some, it's, it's something we all are responsible for. And I think whenever a, an organization has a group that's called the SRE team is doing a disservice. It's, it's basically saying, oh, this other team is responsible for SRE. That's not my job. <laughs> I'll build it. I'll give it to them. <laughs> right. They're responsible for the re resiliency aspect right, of, of my software. That's simply not true. As a software engineer, I am responsible at the end of the day for what is deployed to production. I am responsible for what it means to build a resilient system based on that code, not someone else. And so I think it's really important. It's a key ingredient for an organization to embrace that SRE is everybody's responsibility. And, it, and we do require coaching and guidance and leadership from people like yourself. But that does not mean that we are delegating all SRE responsibility to you. That's just, that's just a recipe for failure in my mind. So as, as soon as an organization, and really the organization's leadership, has to start with the leadership, believe in and preach that every engineer's responsibility is SRE, that's when you start seeing real progress, real successes in the area of, of improving operations and operational efficiencies. 
Love it. Shifting left the responsibility of SRE to all engineers, starting with the leadership so we can build products with considerations and features of SRE from the start. So there you go, ladies and gentlemen, the ingredient and recipe for SRE from Marshall Lamp, distinguished engineer and CTO of Sterling, IBM sustainability software. Thank you very much, Marshall, for joining us today. Great. Thank you, Kevin. I enjoyed it. Please also check out Marshall's blog post, Enterprise to Cloud, as he shares stories of his journey to enable cloud-friendly, scalable, and profitable service. Thank you all for listening. See you again on an upcoming episode.